this Valentine's Day has got you feeling a little blue, then you've come to the right place by clicking that download button and joining me this week for a special Valentine's-inspired edition of Kicking Out at Two. Welcome, everyone. I am your host, Dave Rosenbluth. The Lonely Hearts Club has commenced this week as we are giving you guys the 14 greatest breakups in the history of professional wrestling. We're going to run down the list from 14 all the way to number one and discuss, uh, you know, incidences where tag teams, uh, manager, manage, excuse me, managers and their clients have split up or um, alliances of sorts. We're, we're not just going to keep it with, you know, male, female counterparts. We're going we're gonna to run the gamut and give you a broader spectrum of the greatest breakups, alliances, if you will, in the history of professional wrestling. You know, Valentine's Day is, you know, a hallmark holiday here in the United States. It's all about, you know, giving your loved one flowers and a card and showing them how much you appreciate them this time of year which by the way you should be doing it every single day of the year it shouldn't be just something that you uh you you profess to your loved one only on one day of the year but nonetheless on valentine's day you have that as well as you have heartbreak there's been numerous incidences in the course of life where People have broken up with folks or ended relationships on Valentine's Day. And sometimes Valentine's Day to others is not necessarily a, uh, a happy occasion. And I thought here on Kicking Out It Too, we kind of exploit that a little bit with a little bit of a retro pro wrestling twist, if you will. Um, so we're going to get into that in just a little bit. And spoiler alert. Once again this week, scheduling issues have has afforded me the opportunity to do this show on my own, flying solo. As the leader of the Lonely Hearts Club here on Kicking Out It Too, um, I, I, I don't have a counterpart here to you know uh, run down this countdown list with me. So um, I said last week it wasn't going to be a regular thing, but we're going two in a row here in the month of February, and it's certainly uh, certainly very lonely here in Kicking Out of Two. Hopefully next week I'm going to have someone, and I really mean it this time, I'm, I hope I'm going to have someone join me uh, for, for our next show and uh, help me get out of the weeds verbally, if you will. So, uh, you know, this week I'm going to fly solo once again. Hopefully you guys enjoyed last week's show with our WrestleMania Game Changers. Hopefully I did a great job on my own or a good job or an acceptable job, whatever you whatever you prefer to, 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 to call that performance last week. Hopefully I can do better this week as well on my own as we run down this countdown for you. Um, but before we get into the countdown, it wouldn't be an episode of Kicking Out of Two if I did not give you all the plugs that I need to give you regarding kicking out at two on social media so you can head on over first to facebook facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two and you can join all the fun over there by hitting the like button if you have not already if you have please do me a favor as a member of the kicking out at two crew give me a valentine's day gift of a like or several likes if you will to the facebook page Join all the fun over there. We got links to archive shows, discussions and debates, articles, videos and pictures. It's all up over there on Facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two. Add another member to the kicking out at two crew by hitting that like button right now. And you can also give us a follow on Twitter. Our handle is at kicking out two K I C K N O U T and the number two. It's really lonely over there on Twitter. Uh, I only have 27 followers to this date and uh, hopefully we can uh, help further along the, uh, the, the kicking out at two crew membership with uh, the, the, the Twitter chapter of, uh, of kicking out at two. So please, 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 
give me a follow over there. Same stuff going on on Twitter as it is on Facebook, but in that Twitter uh, atmosphere like, uh, well, it's basically just a Twitter version of Kicking Out of Two. Let me not bullshit you, all right? Um, 140 characters or 220 characters or less, we give it to you all over there on Twitter. Um, and if you're late to the party, the greatest collaboration in retro pro wrestling podcasts is going on right now, each and every Thursday, as Kicking Out at Two teams up with Retromania, Kobe Nida, and myself are marking out the days. That's right, our show's called Marking Out the Days, drops each and every Thursday on moleholeradio.com, iTunes, and retromania.blogspot.com, where Kobe and I get on the magic school bus of pro wrestling podcasts, and we discuss the important and not-so-important moments in wrestling history we cover birthdays we cover people who had passed away on those particular dates we try to run coast to coast border to border and continent to continent when it comes to the history of pro wrestling on those particular dates and this week if you're listening to it today february the 13th uh we're going to cover tomorrow february the 14th in professional wrestling history there's some birthdays we got uh i think someone passed away i'm not sure gotta look at my notes i'm i'm really unorganized right now we got uh, episodes of raw nitro we're going to cover from certain years as well as the saint valentine's day massacre pay-per-view from 1999 20 years to the date we're going to cover that pay-per-view in some form or fashion on marking out the days so check us out marking out the days each and every thursday moholeradio.com itunes retromania.blogspot.com and anywhere there is podcasts out there so uh check us out because we have a lot of fun and uh we love talking the history of wrestling kobe and i have been having a blast doing it i had kobe on recently for the raw bowl watch along a couple weeks ago had a lot of fun doing that so uh yeah check us out and that's really about the end of our plugs this week as we, uh, we, we get into the meat and potatoes, the heart of the matter. How fitting, the heart of the matter on this week's edition of Kicking Out of Two as we're going to give you a top 14 countdown of the greatest breakups in wrestling history. And like I said, I'm not restricting it to male-female breakups or, you know, on-screen relationship, boyfriend-girlfriend. Um, I'm, I'm really expanding the, uh, the, the countdown with alliances, tag team partnerships, uh, managers, and their clients and things of that nature um so i wanted to give you some of the 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 best and most memorable and you're probably wondering why 14 why is it not like an even number like a 15 or a top 10 or a top 20 or 25 well if all of you out there uh are aware valentine's day falls on february 14th it's fallen on february 14th for as long as i've been on this earth in 36 years and probably beyond that so um i thought it was fitting that we give you 14 of the greatest breakups in wrestling history so let's get started with this countdown uh this is a retro podcast so i thought you know why not add a little bit of some of the more recent breakups in wrestling history um Oh, you know, over these last couple of years, because I feel like they're 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 worthy of being on this countdown. Even though, like I said, this is a retro podcast, I'm gonna kind of deviate from the norm just a little bit with a few of these uh, these mentions here. Uh, let me give you an honorable mention first before I get into this countdown. As originally, when I was going over this list, I was going to put down um, Hulk Hogan turning on his fans and all the Hulkamaniacs to form the New World Order at the 1996 bash at the beach however i felt like 
even though as a Hulkamaniac myself, that was a, I felt like as a, as a fan, that was a, a, a big part of my life and a partnership, if you will, with Hulk Hogan, got me into wrestling, made me believe, um, was an inspiration of mine as a young child. I just didn't think it really fit the mold of heartbreaks. As a fan, I thought it was cool, but at the same time, I was heartbroken that he had turned his back on his Hulkamaniacs. I'm sure all the younger fans did as well. But, you know, that Hulk Hogan turn, I've said it before, it's the greatest heel turn in the history of wrestling, and it's on another level, in my opinion. It really is. And, and for those of you that may think this deserves to be on the countdown, you're entitled to that opinion. However, I felt like it... it it's in, a, it's in a class of itself, so I, I wanted to keep it off this countdown um, and stick to the heart of the matter, but like the breakups of, of you know, partnerships and, and tag teams and alliances and things like that. So um, Hogan turning on fans at WCW's Bash at the Beach in 1996 will not be on this countdown, but it definitely gets an honorable mention. It's something that I toyed with putting on this countdown. So for those of you out there that, that want to argue with me, slide into my DMs very gently, by the way. It's Valentine's Day, okay? My wife would appreciate that. <laughs> and, and, and feel free to give me your opinion. You can do it on Facebook or Twitter. You know the address. You know how to get there. Kicking out at two. Facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two. Twitter at kicking out two. K-I-C-K-N-O-U-T and the number two. Just do it if you have an issue with it. All right. Now, it's really time to get this countdown underway. I've been stalling for the last nine minutes or so. Um, let's get into uh, one of the more recent breakups in wrestling history. Coming in at number 14 from the year 2017. Kevin Owens turning on Chris Jericho on an episode of uh, Monday Night Raw. Man, um, you know, Kevin Owens and Chris Jericho's alliance on WWE TV that, at that time period I felt was like a happy accident. They didn't have a whole lot constructed, at least as a viewer, didn't have a whole lot constructed or planned for the two of them. And they kind of noticed a little bit of on-screen chemistry. So they just kind of tried it out and, and see where it was going to land. And uh, it had been working for quite some time, for the better part of you know several months. Jericho was very instrumental in helping Kevin Owens keep his Universal Championship over the course of his reign um, with matches against Seth Rollins. And you could kind of see uh, little instances of, you know, uh, a tease with a breakup between the two of them in tag team matches. They would have some miscommunication. Um, at one point, I believe Jericho did leave Owens, but only came back to help him defeat Roman Reigns at the Roadblock pay-per-view in December of 2016 to keep the Universal title. And uh, it was very, um, it, it was a very roller coaster like existence between the two of them but it was very intriguing stuff and heading into that segment on monday night raw where it was kind of like the, the 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 best friends appreciation kind of night between the two of them um you knew something big was going to happen it was a big production and jericho had pulled out all the stops to keep his best friend kevin owens after owens had um shown his displeasure for jericho after losing the unit or um no, did he lose the universe? No, he lost the universal title after that. Excuse me, I'm speaking out of turn here. Um, 
but they just had their 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 differences and their issues before this night and it was really rocky and Jericho wanted to save the friendship so he did everything he could to to put out this best friends uh display with you know the they were in Vegas it had a very Vegas feel to it with the 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 show dancers the Vegas showgirls and the, the the painting and everything in between and the brilliance of this came when Owens gave Jericho a gift and it was a new list because everyone knows Jericho had the list as a part of his gimmick in this run and he was putting people on the list left and right and it was over and it was popular and so Owens delivers this new list and the way it was produced and the way it was structured when the camera panned to the clipboard back end of the list it said the KO list and Jericho looks and says why is my name on the list and then boom KO just lays into him and puts a beating on him. Uh, reliving um, Jericho's attack on Shawn Michaels on an episode of the Highlight Reel years prior, throwing him through the Jeritron 5000 TV and powerbombing him on the, ape, the ring apron outside on the floor. Um, it was just really good stuff, and, it, and it, it, it exceeded my expectations in terms of when these two were going to break up. It was really fun stuff. Um, I, you know, the payoff following it, I felt was rather weak. Um, I didn't, I've said this on, on other platforms. I didn't think that, uh, you know, Owens and Jericho as the second match on the card at WrestleMania 33 uh, for the U.S. title was a good way to kind of blow it off for the two of them. I really fought hard <laughs> in a creative sense in arguments with other people that Owens and Jericho should have, you know, had a universal championship match and not Goldberg and Lesnar. Goldberg and Lesnar didn't need the belt. And originally, according to Chris Jericho on an episode of Talk is Jericho, he had mentioned that um, originally the idea was him and Owens for the universal title. He was going to get his revenge, win the belt, then drop it to Brock the next month um, at the payback pay-per-view. However, that didn't happen. And Owens dropped the belt to Goldberg at Fastlane within 22 seconds with a little bit of help from a returning Chris Jericho as a distraction. And what we saw was Brock Lesnar challenging Goldberg for the universal title at WrestleMania that year. So, um, that's one of the more recent breakups that I thought was done really well, and I really enjoyed the on-screen partnership between the two of them. They kind of almost reminded me in some ways of a modern-day version of the chemistry that Edge and Christian had with each other and how sneaky they were as a combination. Um, even though Jericho, I think, is a much better performer than both Edge and Christian, I felt like just the, the, the camaraderie between him and Owens on television was comparable to the... The, the chemistry and the dynamic that Edge and Christian presented to us on TV. So um, that comes in at number 14. Number 13, uh, this one comes from 1990. As Sweet Sapphire, baby, left the American Dream Dusty Road, lying in public, if you will, at the SummerSlam 1990. And he, she joined up with the evil, greedy, million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. That's right, baby. Um... <laughs> yeah, Dusty and Sapphire were a very lovable, fun-loving um, tandem. Uh, the story goes that Dusty picked Sapphire out of the crowd as like a fan and danced in the ring, and she ended up becoming his valet or his manager. And uh, turns out in real life, um, I forget her name, but uh, we'll, we'll, you know her real name, but her you know her her character name Sapphire in real life, she used to drive a lot of the wrestlers. Um, to and from the arena to the airport. She was a big fan. And they ended up using her on TV and 
putting her with Dusty, and Dusty tells a great story where, you know, she had she was just a, a regular common person, a common folk, as you will, for the, the common man, baby, the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. And uh, she... She didn't know what to do with all the checks that she was getting from WWE. She didn't, and Dusty was like, uh, "You need to, uh, you need to cash them checks in the bank, baby, if you know what I mean." And so, uh, I thought that was pretty funny that, like, she she was so like taken aback by the job and the money that she was making, she didn't know what to do with the with the money. And Dusty said, "You know, cash the checks or put them in the bank." <laughs> it was just you know kind of fascinating me a little bit. But um, they they were a very fun loving couple. They weren't perceived as like a a you know husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend, but just two regular common folk that a lot of people and a good core group of the audience of wrestling at that time could relate to. Um, so. Uh, the build-up to this big split came was when uh, Sapphire was receiving these anonymous gifts from a um, a very generous individual who who was uh, a very wealthy person at the time, um, and she you know week after week on TV she would talk about how you know she's got a a, a diamond ring and or as Dusty would say she got a cruise around the world a diamond ring a mink coat a brand new Cadillac baby she would get all these gifts and Dusty you know would kind of see this change in her um, and in her character because she was getting all this stuff and it led up and built to SummerSlam 1990 when Dusty was looking for Sapphire uh, after Sapphire had no showed her singles match against Sensational Queen Sherry, Dusty was looking for Sapphire to join her um, in his match against Randy Savage, Macho King Randy Savage, later that night, and they couldn't find her anywhere. Uh, and then at one point, Mean Jean uh, found her, and she ran right into her dressing room and shut the door and locked it, and... They couldn't get her out of the dressing room. Dusty ran to the ring, had his match, and not too long into the match, a million-dollar man and Sapphire showed up on the stage area by the curtain, and basically DiBiase announced that he bought Sapphire, and he was the one that had all the the the, the gifts that he had given her, and he was the man behind uh, you know her 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 cruise around the world and her Cadillac and all the the finer things in life. So uh, as a fan, I remember watching, and it was it was disappointing. I mean, you know, evil million dollar man uh, buying off you know one of the people. To, to be his servant or to, to he didn't even really do anything with, with Sapphire in a way. She was just kind of there for a little while. It was really just to kind of, you know, you know, poke Dusty and get under Dusty's skin that he was able to buy one of the people that, 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 that he related to and, and they related to him so much. So um, it was one of those situations where the, the follow-up didn't have, a whole lot of sting and a whole lot of uh, 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 it, it didn't pack a punch like the actual reveal did as a kid for me because um, Sapphire just kind of disappeared following that. So coming in at number 13, Sweet Sapphire baby, leaving the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, live in public if you will on SummerSlam 1990 baby, that's right. Alright, hopefully I got all the Dusty impersonation out of the way this week. Um, coming in at number 12, Larry Zbysko turning on Bruno Sammartino in 1980. I was not alive when this took place. However, I have watched plenty of wrestling over the years, and um, I managed to watch um, the episode of, I believe it was uh, All-American Wrestling or All-Star Wrestling, where Bruno had... Um, 
He was like the, the teacher, the mentor to Larry Zbysko, who was the student. And Larry Zbysko was the young upstart in the WWF. And um, Zbysko was portrayed as someone who had a lot of promise and could be the, the heir apparent to Bruno San Martino. And Bruno wanted to test Zabisco, and they had an exhibition match, and he kind of schooled him and embarrassed him. And Zabisco, um, not taking too kindly to uh, San Martino overpowering him and overmatching him in this exhibition, brutally attacks Bruno San Martino and nailing him with a wooden folding chair. I think, believe he broke the chair too. And we were off to the races because at that time period in 1980, Bruno was a big name in the Northeast, especially in the New York area. And so you had, you know, anyone who went after Bruno, who attacked Bruno was the most evil person in the territory. And Zabisco shot up to being the number one bad guy at that time. Um, for the WWWF, which would then lead us to the infamous Shea Stadium show where they headlined that event and wrestled inside of a steel cage in front of over 40,000 or 50,000 people. I don't have the exact number in front of me. And uh, it was definitely a, a, a match that was very memorable. Um, Sabisco got his licks in and, and, and managed to put a beating on Bruno, but Bruno at the end of the day came out victorious. And I thought it was, um, I thought this storyline was very well done. I thought the breakup was 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 very well done. It kind of came out of nowhere. Um, even looking back and watching it, you know, in recent years, you didn't really expect Zabisco to just turn on Bruno at, at, at the drop of a dime, but he did, and it made for it, it made for a good storyline. And the and the payoff, the big match at Shea Stadium in the cage, it was it, it was truly some good stuff. Go out of your way if you can to search for it on WWE Network. I believe there is a Bruno San Martino's collections. Uh, uh, retrospective under the collections portion of the network where there's like his greatest matches and moments and i believe that match is on there um from shea stadium in 1980 bruno san martino and larry zabisco and larry zabisco would basically ride off of that um storyline into um you know a more successful career later on with uh his run in the awa the stuff he was doing with um uh, UWF and Jim Crockett promotions and eventually WCW that puts Zabisco on the map so essentially Zabisco breaking up with Bruno San Martino um, did it for his career and it all came full circle when Zabisco uh, would get inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame by his mentor and the guy that put him on the map Bruno San Martino so very fitting that uh, how that all came about and how it all came first full circle Larry Zabisco turning on Bruno San Martino in 1980, coming in at number 12. Number 11, uh, uh, one of my favorite um, breakups, turns, if you will, um, in wrestling history. One that a lot of fans felt didn't make sense, didn't want to see it, felt that it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't necessary between these two. However, I think that's what the beauty of it was, was that fans didn't want to see it. And that was when Scott Hall turned on Kevin Nash at Slamboree 1998. Uh, it was at this period in time, it was the early stages of the NWO splitting up into two groups. You had Hollywood Hogan representing the NWO Black and White known as NWO Hollywood, and then you had Kevin Nash, who had formed the NWO Wolfpack. And at that time, he had had um, Conan... Macho Man Randy Savage, Kurt Henning, and, and Rick Rude. Uh, I believe he acquired, um, actually at this point he didn't acquire Lex Luger, but 
Obviously, Scott Hall being a part of, you know, the, the, the close ties that the two of them had as the outsiders coming into WCW, uh, he was automatically a part of the Red and Black. And uh, it was during this period of time, I believe, uh, Scott Hall was going through some personal issues. Um, he had taken some time away from the company. I believe there was uh, a couple stints in rehab and just some personal stuff going on in his life where he was not on television as much. However, he was uh, scheduled to return in this tag team match at Slamboree with Kevin Nash to defend the WCW World Tag Team titles against Sting and the newest member of the NWO Black and White, the Giant. Um, and there was a, a little bit of a... Um, uh, a what, 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 what can I call it here? There was a... There was a there was basically the the the, the question um, hanging over everyone's head heading into that match was you know Sting's kind of outnumbered in a way he's got you know even though he's not totally against the NWO Wolfpack and this is before he would eventually join the group you know he had to contend with Hall and Nash and then he has a partner that is a part of the NWO Black and White that he's been fighting off for the last several years in the Giant. So the big question was, was how's Sting going to survive in this match? And he's kind of the odd man out in many ways. Um, match time comes, and uh, it's your, your, your typical standard match. This match main evented that Slambery pay-per-view. And uh, at one point, Nash goes to powerbomb the Giant, and... Uh, out of nowhere, Scott Hall grabs one of the WCW tag team belts and nails Kevin Nash in the back of the head, causing the Giant to uh, then cover Nash, and your new world tag team champions were Sting and the Giant. Sting standing there in disbelief, watching the whole thing, not sure what to make of it. Scott Hall was the newest member of the NWO Black and White, NWO Hollywood. And I remember as a kid... Um, I mean, as much as I enjoyed Hall and Nash together, I felt it was necessary that Scott Hall um, be a key component of the black and white with Hogan because, number one, he was the one that started the whole thing with his um, his debut in WCW a couple of years prior. However, the NWO black and white, I felt like as a kid, they needed a, a big, credible name to, to, to kind of back Hogan a little bit because Hogan pretty much had the NWOB team um, on his squad for a little while with, uh, with Vincent and Brian Adams and Scott Norton and Buff Bagwell. And, and, you know, he added the Giant eventually and then Scott Hall. And it, they looked like they were on par with the popular NWO Wolfpack in terms of star power. So I didn't really have a problem with it, but a lot of fans didn't really care for it because Hall and Nash were so good together. Um, that it was very tough seeing them apart. It's kind of like in today's world, a lot of people would love to see Paul Heyman turn on Brock Lesnar, but the real money is in Paul Heyman and Lesnar as the package deal, not the two of them apart. So in this case, in 1998, the real money, at least in most people's minds, was Hall and Nash together, whether they were in the NWO or whether they were not, at least the two of them together, that's what people wanted to see. So um, as a fan, I didn't have a problem with it. I, I thought it was interesting and an interesting twist in the NWO split. People will criticize the, the split of the NWO and, and watering it down, but I felt like with the way the story had gone, it was, it, it was a natural progression for the NWO to split up and go into two different factions and with the wolf pack twist to it and the red and black and the colors it, I, I liked it it was a lot of fun um there were certain parts of the execution of it that didn't match up but for the most part in theory i thought it was good so you had hall and nash who had this history with each other the two of them are you know the 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 
the founding fathers of the NWO, and now Scott Hall is split up. However, you didn't see a whole lot of Scott Hall after he left. Um, and they were they were still dealing with Hall's personal issues behind the scenes, and he was just kind of coming in and out. But they were still addressing the 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 turn with uh, him turning on Kevin Nash at that Slambury pay per view in May of '98. And at one point, um, there was a there was a period in time where they teased Hall and Nash getting back together. It was on a Nitro. Nash um, was uh, was was making a run in and he was going to beat up some of the black and white guys. And, um, he didn't want to fight his, his best friend, Scott Hall. And for a moment, they, they did the two sweet sign and we all thought, Oh, Hall's back with, with Nash and he's in the wolf pack again. And then Hall turns on him again. And the big story was, was that Nash couldn't understand why Scott Hall was doing this to him. And he just wanted his best friend back. And then they, things got, a little uncomfortable um, where they, they 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 brought in Scott Hall's personal issues with his his addiction with um, with with alcohol and substance abuse and his personal stuff with his wife and his kids, which was publicly um, made aware to fans regarding that's those those instances and. It, this is where it just got uncomfortable, where they exposed Scott Hall and his drinking problem at that time. And they exposed Scott Hall's, um, you know, public uh, separation from his wife and the the issues that he was having with his children and how he was kind of going on this downward spiral. And they incorporated that into the reason why he turned on his best friend, Kevin Nash, um, and also equating it to that it was just all about money. It's a business decision. Um, and that's where things just got really, really uncomfortable, even as a fan. And at 36 years old now, going back and watching it, um, I mean, I get why they did it. However, um, knowing people who have dealt with issues with alcohol, myself included, I'm seven years sober currently, uh, alcohol-free. I got carried away with it, did some stupid stuff, and have learned my lesson tenfold. Um, and going seven years strong without having a drink, I can understand um, why people would feel uncomfortable watching it. Because I personally felt uncomfortable watching it too, and it could be it, it could be a big reminder of some of the embarrassing things you did with um, when you when you know you're under the influence. And that's no disrespect to people who who, who partake in in having their adult beverages every once in a while. I want to be clear on that because um, there are people that can handle it, um, and there are some people that can't. I'm one of those guys. I was one of those people that couldn't handle, um, you know, having just a few drinks and, and, and calling it a night. So um, full disclosure here, I didn't want to open up about my whole personal life, but I felt it was necessary to discuss that when it came to this turn. And then overall, we talked about it on the show before, finger poke of doom, Hall and Nash come back together, screw Goldberg, reform the NWO, um, I guess you could say that was what was best for business. Some people will disagree with that. We've discussed it on our Trading Places episode here on Kicking Out of Two, and we discussed the finger poke of doom. You can find that in the archives on facebook.com forward slash kicking out of two. You can find it on Twitter, and you can find it over at soundcloud.com uh, where we discussed all the what-if scenarios had the finger poke of doom gone in a different direction. So, yeah, that's where I stand when it comes to the Hall and Nash turn. I didn't have a problem with it, and... Uh, it was one of the, the, the more um, realistic and shocking breakups in all of wrestling history at that time. As we move on to number 10, a more recent split in wrestling history. As Dean Ambrose turns on Seth Rollins from, 
October of 2018, just earlier this, uh, late last year, I should say, on the same evening that their S.H.I.E.L.D. brother, Roman Reigns, announced that he was battling leukemia and he would have to step away from wrestling, which I talked about in a brief uh, uh, address, if you will, on Kicking Out at Two regarding the, the big Roman announcement. You can, find, you can find that also in the archives over at SoundCloud.com, uh, titled Thank You, Roman. Um, yeah, this one makes the top ten for me personally because of in the manner that it took place on the same evening in an era of wrestling where and an era of society where people are very sensitive and in some ways oversensitive to the uh the 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 content just in general not not only in wrestling but oversensitive to everything in society and life people need a reason to complain about everything whether it's politics sports entertainment wrestling life in general people need something to complain about and it's it's pretty sickening and this was done i think it was done so well and here's why um like I said, it was done on the same evening that Roman Reigns announced that he was, you know, leaving wrestling to 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 battle this fight with cancer. And you had that, that real life moment that tugged at your heartstrings emotionally and really really made you um Really, really made you develop a love more for Joe Anawai, the human being, not the Roman Reigns character. And then, all throughout the show, they're discussing this. They're 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 given replays of Reigns' speech. At one point, Ambrose and Rollins dedicate their tag title victory to Roman. They win the belts, and then afterwards, Ambrose drops Rollins with a DDT. Beats him mercifully. Removes the mat from the outside ring. DDTs him on the floor. I mean. It threw everybody for a loop for a number of reasons. People, people, I, I've, I've read stuff online and in, in chat groups and on social media how offensive it was that they did it on this night. And some people, you could feel offended. That's fine. That's your prerogative. I'm not going to knock you for feeling offended. But I feel like it worked so well because it was such an emotional evening to start and how they were associated with Reigns' big announcement. Um, regarding his fight with leukemia and the fact too that like most times when guys turn on other guys and and you know end their partnership or their 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 alliance on on in wrestling they don't do it after they win a championship and that was i think the beauty of it is that like ambrose gave rollins that false sense of security all throughout the entire match and even up until when they won the belts it was like you know it was it, it it threw everybody for a loop, and that's why I think it worked so well. Um, even though they had been teasing dissension in the Shield before that, you know, before that night, where Ambrose was almost like treated and and uh, portrayed as the weak link by the announcers and and uh, the heels that were opposing the Shield, like Ziggler and McIntyre and Braun Strowman, and you know, then all of a sudden for Ambrose and Rollins to win the belts, and then boom. Out of nowhere, Dean Ambrose turns on his brother Seth Rollins after they had gone through such an emotional um, roller coaster with Roman Reigns early in the evening. It just made for a really good, shocking segment, and probably one of the best ends to a Monday Night Raw in such a long time. Um, and in a PG era and a very you know politically correct climate and environment in our society and in our culture. It really tugged at a lot of heartstrings emotionally on a number of levels, and that's why I think it works so well, and that's why I consider it one of the the, the the greatest breakups in all of wrestling history because these guys, 
because of the climate and the in the environment that it took place in and even though it's not a retro moment it definitely deserves its place in wrestling history for one of the greatest um turns in all of uh in all of wrestling as we we move on to number nine um a storyline that's probably one of my personal favorites uh comes in 2005 when eddie guerrero turned on Rey Mysterio in the spring of 2005. This was one that was a very emotional roller coaster as well, where this all started between Eddie and Rey um, in the spirit of competition. They wanted to find out who was the better wrestler. And they would they would open the WrestleMania 21 card with a fantastic match. They were both the WWE Tag Team Champions on SmackDown at that time. And it was a great match to open that show. Probably one of their most underrated matches. A lot of people look at Eddie and Ray hooking it up and they think of that Halloween Havoc match, which is a great match. It's one of the greatest matches in WCW history and even in wrestling history. But um, this match doesn't get enough love uh, from from wrestling fans. And I like the Eddie Guerrero, Rey Mysterio, WrestleMania 21 bout. It was just a, a, a top to bottom. It was, a, in my opinion, it was a classic. I'm going to go on record saying it was a classic. So they had that match, and Mysterio would come out the victor in a nail-biter. And at the end of the match, we would see Eddie Guerrero and Mysterio embrace with a, a sign of respect as they both shook hands. And Guerrero gave uh, Mysterio the, the forum to, to, to soak in all the adulation. And as time went on, after WrestleMania... The tensions between the two started to build. They had some uh, miscommunication in a number of matches. Both individuals cost each other an opportunity at the WWE Championship inadvertently. Eddie Guerrero got the you know uh, got the best of himself with his Latino temper, causing Mysterio to lose a tournament style match to JBL. Um, I believe Mysterio did the same thing as well at one point. Then there was miscommunication between the two in a tag team match with the debuting Eminem, uh, Mercury and Nitro, Johnny Nitro, otherwise known as Johnny Impact, Johnny Mundo, John Morrison, um, John Hennigan, whatever you want to call him, um, the the Johnny Takeover. No, that's uh, Johnny Gargano. But yeah, anyhow, so um, Guerrero and Mysterio had their issues there. At one point, um, Mysterio and Guerrero then defended the tag team titles and, uh, you know, lost them to Mercury and Nitro. And I believe not long after that, it was uh, Eddie Guerrero who had finally had enough and snapped and attacked Rey Mysterio. Gave him a vicious beating, a, a, a deadly brain buster suplex on the ring steps outside on the floor. Ripping Mysterio's mask off, bloodying him up, and... Basically blaming Ray for why he did what he did. And this is where you had classic bad guy Eddie Guerrero come in full effect. And following that, uh, these these two had some great, great matches. Judgment Day 2005, uh, the, the Great American Bash, the ladder match for custody of Dominic at SummerSlam that year. Even though I didn't really care for the Dominic aspect of... Um, this storyline and custody of a child in a ladder match. It was rather silly. I thought Vince Russo was right in the storyline. These two guys um, made every single match interesting. And it the, the whole thing was really all about Eddie Guerrero wanting and needing to beat Rey Mysterio. And that's really the root of all of it and why he turned on Rey. It's not really about, you know, um, the differences that they had. It was the fact that 
Ray was better than Eddie, and Eddie couldn't handle that, and so therefore he took it out on his best friend, uh, Ray Mysterio. And so that was what made this storyline so good. And at one point, I think they kind of continued it past that ladder match, and they had a cage match on SmackDown where Eddie actually won. Um, and it wasn't—I mean, it wasn't the real blow-off of the storyline. Eddie would then go on to to wrestle. Um, Batista for the World Heavyweight Championship, and then later that year, unfortunately, um, Eddie Guerrero would pass away of a heart attack. And uh, to me, I felt like I could have seen Eddie and Rey Mysterio multiple times um, following this because this rivalry was so good. Like I said, with the exception of the Dominic stuff, everything else was great all the way up until the turn. Like at one point, you thought Eddie would turn on Ray, but then they, but then they kiss and make up, and then they have a tag match, and then they lose the titles, but then they're still kind of friends, but then they want to get the titles back, and it was just great storytelling at its finest end. Eddie Guerrero is one of the very few individuals in all of wrestling that's got the ability to make you love him one minute and hate him the next. And in 2005... As much as I'd like to say I was smart to the product and smart to the industry, I couldn't help but feel like, man, Eddie Guerrero is such a dick for what he did to Rey Mysterio. And in the way that he broke up, you know, their friendship and their tag team partnership and their alliance, like, I just couldn't help but root for Rey Mysterio, who is a likable underdog character that a lot of people root for and is very popular. He's one of those few guys in wrestling that, like, you couldn't turn Rey Mysterio into a bad guy because he's he's so lovable by children and women and, um, you know, represents himself as a family man, especially in that storyline, too, with Dominic. That was the one thing that I take from it that was good was that Mysterio represented, um, you know, his family very well, his wife and his two children. And for those of you that are, you know, unaware you know, about the Dominic storyline, uh, Rey Mysterio's son Dominic um, in the storyline was revealed to be Eddie Guerrero's biological child. That Eddie Guerrero had had a child with another woman when he was broken up from Vicky Guerrero. Even though that's not true, um, Dominic's not the biological child of Eddie Guerrero. The story that Eddie Guerrero had a child uh, post the breakup with Vicky is true. It's another another child from a from another relationship. So um, they took that and they 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 brought it together with Rey Mysterio's son Dominic, who ironically enough is currently training with Lance Storm to enter uh, the the wrestling business. So uh, I, I'm I'm curious as to to see. Um, you know what he's going to do when he enters wrestling but you know he played up the scared child very well in 2005 during that storyline so if there's some positives from the dominant custody angle i guess this would be one of them but um the breakup in and of itself was a work of art it really was and it it it's some of the best stuff. And Eddie Guerrero is an individual who's one of a kind and is sorely missed in the wrestling business i can only imagine you know the, the skill level and talent that Eddie Guerrero had in 2005, if he was still alive, what he was able to, what he would be able to bring to today's wrestling, it certainly would be a work of art. Um, as we move on to number eight, um, a breakup, a split of an alliance that I thought, yes, it had to happen, but I was really hoping it didn't. And that was when Evolution dumped Randy Orton in August of 2004. Um, I was a big Evolution guy. Um, not huge, but I enjoyed the, the the gimmick because it was paying 
homage to the Four Horsemen. And, you know, being the traditional wrestling fan that I am, um, I'm, a big, I'm a big Horseman guy too. So when they, when they formed Evolution with Triple H as kind of like in the Ric Flair role and Ric Flair kind of like in the J.J. Dillon role and you had Batista and Orton who were the future of the WWE being groomed by Triple H and Ric Flair, um, it, it, it made all the sense in the world and they put it together really well. And so um, I became a big Randy Orton fan at this point. And I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the fact that he won the World Heavyweight Championship. And I was a big fan of that, and I thought it made sense, and the people were behind it, and they were into it. Um, but, you know, at this time, Evolution was obviously about Triple H and the, uh, and the group protecting Triple H and his character at that time. And it was, it, like I said, it was very fitting that they dumped Orton because it had to happen. I mean, you Triple H's character and his ego could not allow Randy Orton to be the World Heavyweight Champion and still be a part of Evolution. Triple H's character lived and breathed for that World Heavyweight Championship. So it was a case where it had to happen even though I didn't want it to happen. Even though in my, my, my mind I tried to rationalize it that, you know, let's see if they can milk it a little longer. Let's see how long they can go with... Triple H kind of, I wouldn't say taking a back seat, but allowing Orton to, to, to get his shine and to, to, to really, um, you know, boast and brag about being the world heavyweight champion. Let's see how long they could drag it out. They didn't wait very long because the next night after Orton had defeated Chris Benoit in a SummerSlam rematch, the individual who he won the title from the night before, Evolution came out to celebrate and we saw Ric Flair and Batista hoist Randy Orton up on Batista's shoulders. And Triple H is giving the thumbs up, and he's looking at Orton, and all smiles. And then he looks at he looks at Orton and put, gives him the thumbs down, and points to Batista and says, "Do it." And Batista gives him an electric chair and drops him, and they put a beating on Orton to end that Monday Night Raw, bloodying him up. Triple H basically letting him know that you're not going to be the champion if you're in Evolution. You're out of Evolution. That title's mine. How dare you! Um, and I, I thought it was very well done. And it made me excited for a, a Randy Orton singles run, but unfortunately, in my opinion, I think they, they, they botched that pretty big. Um, they, get, they put the belt back on Hunter immediately, and they tried to have Orton chase and be a good guy. And I've always said it best, Orton, as popular as he is, or should I say as popular as his RKO is, because um, I think that's what fans really enjoy about him is the RKO. Um, he's, he's better off served being the dickhead. He really is, and um, that's what I was kind of hoping, that he was going to stay a bad guy, be in evolution, maybe Triple H kind of take a little bit of a backseat and, and really help groom Orton as the champion, and then, you know, that false sense of security comes into play, and boom, he knocks him out cold and lets his intentions known that you're not in evolution. But they did that a little too quickly. They hot-shotted it, but the execution of it was still pretty well done, and they could have salvaged it and... and Really, uh, really made Orton into a a, a, a strong babyface champion, chasing the heel in Triple H. But it just didn't. I, as a fan, I didn't really care for it. Didn't do it for me. Just really did not do it for me. So, um, but the the turn executed very well done, and one of the better breakups. Um, and it, and you know the storytelling in it was 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 perfect too because. A few months later, when Batista would reveal his intentions to challenge Triple H for that world title at WrestleMania due to his Royal Rumble victory in 2005, Batista 
kind of did the same thing and gave Hunter and Flair the thumbs down and said, I'm not going to SmackDown. I'm staying on Raw, and I'm taking your title. Um, it, I thought it was I, – I thought – Evolution and the breakup, it all came full circle, and it was, some, it was certainly some good stuff. As we move along on this countdown, number seven, this breakup is a breakup that I think a lot of people could relate to and understand. Even though this was done in very short order, um, this is something that certainly I think a lot of people could relate to and definitely did when it took place. Because it, I wouldn't say it kind of came out of nowhere, but it wasn't brewing long enough. And then when the execution of the breakup took place, or of the split, if you will, um, it, it, it caught people off guard and people were like, whoa. Um, and I'm talking about 1998 when Scott Steiner turned on his brother Rick at Super Brawl. Um, the Steiner brothers were universally loved as you know one of the, the, the greatest uh, brother tandems in all of wrestling. Um, I, I'm a big Steiner Brothers fan. They're one of my top five favorite teams of all time. They made it onto my tag team Mount Rushmore. Um, which you can check out in the archives over at SoundCloud.com. And the, the, the lead-up to this, like I said, this was brewing for maybe about a couple of weeks or a month where, like, you know, there was some miscommunication between the two. Steiner, or should I say Scott Steiner, was kind of hogging the, the, the limelight, and he was developing a little bit more of an ego and an attitude. And, you know, Rick... Um, was kind of reserved and laid back about it, but you know there was still some there were still some issues between the two, as you could tell on television. Ted DiBiase at the time was their manager, and he was the one that was kind of, I would say, the one that was kind of trying to referee it and and make sure it didn't happen. And unfortunately, early on in the match, it was the Steiners challenging, or should I say, defending. Were they defending or challenging? I think they were defending the the WCW World Tag Team titles against Hall and Nash, the Outsiders. And in their corner, Hall and Nash had Dusty Rhodes, who had just joined the NWO a month prior. Um, he was their corner man, and DiBiase was the corner man for the Steiners. How ironic. The two of them were corner mans for each tag team, and they were both involved in our, uh, our number 13 greatest breakup when Sapphire uh, dumped Dusty Rhodes. But anyhow, not to go off on a tangent, um, Scott and Rick were cleaning the house. And the outsiders are out on the floor, and Rick does the usual, and he runs around the circle, and he goes under Scott's legs, and Scott kind of, you know, uh, poses over him, and all of a sudden Scott gives this wink, and then double axe handles Rick, and allows the outsiders to to continue beating on him. Um, Ted DiBiase in disbelief, fans in the Cow Palace couldn't believe it. Uh, Steiner attacking DiBiase following that and the Outsiders pretty much having their way with Rick um, as the match continued for a few minutes after that and then you know the final nail in the coffin was uh, Scott Hall delivering the Outsiders edge to Rick Steiner and Scott Steiner you know helping with that victory helping the Outsiders become the new WCW World Tag Team Champions with Scott Steiner being the newest member to the NWL um, as, as someone who has um Three brothers, you know, brothers fight, brothers have differences. Um, I, I've certainly had my differences with my brothers before. Uh, one of my brothers in particular, um, him and I uh, didn't speak for a while. We had, you know, stupid issues that we were fighting over. And so, um, you know, you can, at least for me, I could relate to this breakup, if you will. Not the circumstances as to why it happened, but just how 
heartbreaking it is. And um, I thought that this was done very well, even though it was, even though it took place in a short period of time, the, uh, the, the, the Scott Steiner uh, breakup and morphing into Big Papa Pump um, was certainly a good payoff with the breakup, too, because Scott joined the NWO, and he cut his hair, and he bleached it blonde, and he kind of had that superstar Billy Graham look, and that really changed it for him. That was one of those instances where um, Scott really launched his singles career after that by turning on Rick. Now, the follow-up with these two wouldn't necessarily be... Wouldn't, it, it didn't really, it, in my opinion, it wasn't the best. There were some injuries that had occurred with Scott. I think Rick had some too. They were really dragging this out, and, and we didn't really get to the blow-off match. Um, Spring Stampede 1998, later that year, they were supposed to have a match in the singles match. It turned into a tag with Buff and Luger on each side. Uh, it was also, I believe, at... Um, uh, Road Wild, they were supposed to have a match, and Scott Steiner feigned an injury. Um, and then at Fall Brawl, they did the um, you know they they did the storyline where you know Buff hurt his neck, and we all know that Buff had a um, a neck injury earlier that year. So they kind of tugged on the heartstrings and tried to make us believe that Buff was really hurt when it was all an NWO ruse, and Scott and Buff would beat up Rick. And then we get to Halloween Havoc the next month, and Rick had to wrestle in a tag match to beat Scott and the Giant for the titles, the tag titles, and then he would get the match with his brother Scott if he won. Buff turned on him again. It was like, it, it was so all over the place. Um, I felt like it didn't get the proper, um, the, the proper follow-up from that great turn that great breakup if you will of scott turning on rick it sold out but yeah i i enjoyed it and i thought it was one of the better uh breakups in all of wrestling history eventually they would get back together they would form an alliance they would team up from time to time they had a little run in tna for a little while against uh the the, the dudley boys which i thought was pretty fun and pretty cool and so uh yeah the steiner brothers scott turning on rick at super brawl in 1998 coming in at number seven number six um this is a situation that evolved behind the scenes and then eventually would make its way in front of the camera as we would see the love triangle between Matt Hardy, Lita, and Edge all unfold in 2005. Now, what this really started behind the scenes as Matt Hardy was uh, battling a knee injury and he was out, he had his knee um, surgically repaired and he was dating Lita at the time in real life. They were also an on-screen couple at one point and uh, behind the scenes uh, Lita was traveling with Edge who was one of Matt Hardy's best friends and they developed a relationship and a romantic uh, re relationship I should say and one thing led to another and um, you know it happened. They they eventually hooked up. And, you know, there's all different kinds of stories as to how it happened. I'm not going to get into all the particulars, but, um, you know, unfortunately, Matt Hardy was let go because he kind of made that relationship public when he found out. Um, WWE didn't want that bad press. And, uh, you know, Matt Hardy let it be known that, uh, you know, his best friend um, in real life, Adam Copeland, slept with his girlfriend, Amy Dumas. And he was not happy about it. So WWE let him go because it was a very um, public issue that was 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 starting to affect the storylines in WWE at that time. At one point, I believe um, Lita's character was a good guy or a babyface, and she was um, 
she was uh, what was she doing? Oh, she was she was feuding with Trish, but you know Trish was the heel. But they were chanting, you know, lead as a slut and lead as a whore. And um, at one point, they tried to incorporate um, the storyline with with Kane, where she kind of had an alliance with Kane because Kane forced her um, into that alliance, and then they had a baby together. But she lost a baby with Snitsky, and then they they tried to recreate. Um, her on her pairing with Edge and, and and put it on screen by having her turn on Kane, but the people were still like you know they 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 still wanted to see Matt Hardy and eventually Matt Hardy would end up uh, would end up returning they would rehire him and they decided to use this storyline Hardy would make an appearance on Raw um, in the backstage area attacking Edge the announcers went quiet during the whole thing making us all feel like this was a real life thing the cameras kind of panned off and they cut to commercial real quickly. Um, and then eventually it was at, um, it was in August of 2005 when, uh, you know, it was announced that Matt Hardy was rehired, um, officially on WWE TV with Vince McMahon. Uh, I was at that Raw as a matter of fact, and that was when they announced that Hardy would face Edge at SummerSlam. And I was really looking forward to that match because both guys worked well together during their times in their tag teams with, you know, the Hardys and Edge and Christian in those TLC matches. And this was very personal. And a lot of times, personal rivalries have a tendency to um, translate very well in a storyline uh, fashion. You know, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels hated each other for, for God knows how long. And the, the chemistry that they had on screen was unbelievable. So I thought that that was going to translate very well with Edge and with Matt Hardy. And... Um, you know, this breakup, so to speak, the WWE took a negative and they turned it into a positive by making this a storyline. And, uh, you know, I felt as a kid, um, this was going to catapult Matt Hardy into a singles, into a major singles role on TV. He was going to kind of step out of the shadow of his brother, Jeff, who was basically looked at as the better Hardy, um, out of the two. And, you know, the first match that him and Edge had at SummerSlam, a lot of people look at it as a disappointment, but I felt like it was a good way to start things and kick things off, and you weren't going to get the closure that most fans expected in that match. It was very realistic. They beat the shit out of each other because they hated each other because one guy took the other guy's girl, and the referee had to stop the match because there was too much blood loss. It made sense. The finish worked. I enjoyed it. Um, they moved on to another street fight on Raw where they, they jumped off the stage through the electrical circuit board. They had um, the cage match at Unforgiven that year in 2005. And it was very personal in that match. And then we saw um, Edge send Matt Hardy to SmackDown in a Loser Leaves Raw Money in the Bank ladder match where he put his Money in the Bank contract on the line on the uh, October 3rd, 2005 edition of Monday Night Raw. It was the Raw Homecoming show where they came back to the USA Network after being on Spike TV for so long. And so... Um, like I said, it was a negative that this took place behind the scenes. It was a very unfortunate set of circumstances. Obviously, um, you know, Matt Hardy was hurt by this, brokenhearted. The girl that he loved, the girl he thought he was going to marry someday, um, you know, cheated on him uh, with his best, with one of his best friends. And they, they took that and they spun it into a storyline. And it was one of the more popular storylines um, in WWE at that time. And I felt the way it was... Uh, the way it was finally executed, it got you excited. And so I wouldn't necessarily say this was a great breakup in the sense that, you know, Lita definitively left Matt Hardy on TV. But it was good in the sense that, like I said, 
that negative of it all taking place behind the scenes, they brought it to the forefront, made a storyline out of it, made some good money out of it, made a star out of Edge, even though it wasn't really designed for Matt Hardy to be the 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 hero coming out of all this, which I was kind of hoping for. They made a huge star out of Edge, and it, it certainly helped catapult him to the next level. So uh, that's the positive I see in it. That's why it made this countdown here coming in at number six. Number five, um, a storyline that I wasn't alive when this took place, but the impact that this breakup had would... Um, put the wheels in motion for this certain area and territory in the country um, for big things to come. And I'm talking about when um, the Freebirds, particularly Michael Hayes, cost Kerry Von Erich the NWA World Heavyweight Championship on Christmas night, December 25th, 1982, inside of a steel cage against Nature Boy Ric Flair. Um, you know, down in Dallas, Texas, world-class championship wrestling, the Von Erichs were the Beatles of, of the Dallas area. Carrie, Kevin, Mike, David, um, all the, you know, I think there was Chris too as well. The Von Erich family were, were heroes in that area. And anyone that opposed them were the most evil, vile human beings on the face of the earth. Um, and the Von Erichs pretty much kind of took over that territory and ran roughshod through a lot of a, a lot of different bad guy combinations over the years. You had you know Gary Hart and and his group of bad guys with uh, um, the Missing Link and Kamala and the Great Kabuki, and then you had Skandar Akbar and Devastation Incorporated um, that were opposing the Von Erichs, and so. Um, the Von Erichs were a big deal in Texas at that time, just pretty much the top dogs. They were like, they were like a family version of an, a family, the Texas family version of Hulk Hogan in the sense that like, you know, they ran through everyone just like Hogan ran through the majority of the monsters in the WWF during the glory days of his run. So, um, the Von Erichs had formed an alliance with Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy of the Freebirds, and they were in tag matches together. They, they wrestled numerous times, and the Freebirds were starting to get popular, and the audience was starting to like the Freebirds, and they were almost on par in popularity with the Von Erich family. And it was Christmas night where Kerry Von Erich had the opportunity to face Ric Flair for the NWA World Heavyweight title in Dallas, um, at the, uh, the the big arena, I forget what it was called, uh, but um, I think it was the American Airlines Center, or maybe that's what it currently is now. But it was the it was the big arena. Um, it wasn't the Sportatorium where this took place. And Michael P.S. Hayes was the guest referee, um, and then Terry Gordy was the gatekeeper. He was the one that was outside the cage door to make sure that you know Flair didn't you know screw anyone or anyone else didn't get involved in the match. Or should I say, make sure that Flair didn't screw Kerry Von Erich and make sure anyone else didn't get involved in the match. Now, mind you, Michael Hayes was the guest referee, but then there was also um, another referee that was involved in the match. I believe it was David Manning, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of, the, one of the, the big contributors behind the scenes to World Class Championship Wrestling. So anyhow, um, the match has taken place, and, and uh, you know, at one point, um, 
Flair gets into it with Michael Hayes, and Michael Hayes is getting back into it with Flair and getting a little physical. The other referee is kind of disapproving of this, and Michael shoves that referee, knocks him on his ass, and, you know, is like, well, I'm the referee now. I'll take over from here. And at one point, he's trying to he's trying to help Kerry Von Erich win the match. And Kerry is, you know, as, as Michael Hayes said it in the world-class DVD that WWE put out, Kerry wasn't taking Michael's help because it was the Texas thing to do. So um, a few times Michael Michael tried to uh, you know do some quick counts and Kerry Von Erich would would get up off the cover. Um, the other referee was trying to get involved. It, it was a very convoluted situation. And at one point, um, Flair uh, need Kerry Von Erich in the back, um, which then resulted in Kerry's forward momentum pushing Michael Hayes into the cage door and then uh, knocking him out. Out of the cage, I should say. And then Michael gets back up, flares out of the scene. He sees Carrie standing over him, and then that causes him to take that cage door and slam it in Carrie's face. Flair would end up pinning Carrie Von Erich and with help from Michael Hayes, and then Michael and Terry Gordy leave, and we're off to the races. Von Erichs and the Freebirds, the Hatfields and the McCoys, Georgia versus Texas. It was it was a huge deal in that territory and really helped sustain the popularity of that territory for a number of years because people saw all different kinds of combinations of the Freebirds and the Vinericks face off with each other in these tag matches and they they intertwined other baby faces and heels at one point i believe Jimmy Garvin um, was tagging with the Freebirds he was like the unofficial fourth Freebird because he had issues with David Von Erich at one point and they just made that territory like red hot like People remember world class, obviously, as a territory that was, um, you know, based on uh, the rivalry with um, the Von Erichs and the Freebirds. Many people don't remember world class for what else it brought um, with other stars and other aspects of it. When they think of world class, they think of Freebirds, Von Erichs, because that took over the territory. And um, it was so popular that they tried to ride off that weight of momentum at one point when Michael Hayes left. And they did a new Freebird storyline with um, Buddy Jack Roberts, Terry Gordy, and the new leader of the Freebirds, Iceman King Parsons. And it just didn't really translate well. You had to have Michael Hayes as a part of the group. And at that point, this was when World Class was really starting to um, continue their downward spiral. A lot of bad things were taking place. Guys were dying. Gino Hernandez, a couple of the Von Erich boys had passed away. Um, you know, business was not the greatest. So they were really holding on to hope that the Freebird Von Erich storyline was going to draw even in later years. And it just didn't really work out too well. But um, the breakup, like I said, makes it to the top of this, one of the top spots on this list at number five because of the impact it had moving forward. Uh, the friendship that was short-lived turned into what many say is one of the greatest rivalries in all of wrestling history. And uh, for those of you out there that are some wrestling buffs, you should get on WWE Network and search for the uh, some, some old episodes of World Class Championship Wrestling. The stuff that took place in that sportatorium with the Von Erichs and the Freebirds. That sportatorium was like the, the ECW Arena of Dallas, Texas, the the, the bingo hall of, um, of 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 Dallas, Texas, and you would think that there was twenty thousand people screaming in that building, and that place only sat maybe about a thousand people because that's how red hot that crowd would be when the Von Erichs and the Freebirds hooked it up. So coming in at number five, the Freebirds 
cost Kerry Von Erich the NWA world title on Christmas night in 1982. Number four on this list as we are we are winding things up and slowing down here. Comes in 1996 at SummerSlam that year when Paul Bearer turned on The Undertaker, helping mankind win the first ever Boiler Room Brawl. Um, this one came out of left field for me as a kid watching it. Um, I've always said that 1996, I was a li- I was, I-, I felt like I was a little more sophisticated as a viewer, knowing a little bit more and knowing when things were going to happen and weren't going to happen. This was before the internet really um, took off as a as a major part of my fandom. Um, I, I think like my experience watching wrestling, I could just kind of tell certain things were going to go down. Um, the way stories had uh, had progressed and, and been portrayed throughout my course of my wrestling fandom. And in this situation, um, I didn't see this one coming. I really didn't. I couldn't picture Undertaker and Paul Bearer apart from each other. And this was the first time where Undertaker's character showed some real vulnerability um, heading into this SummerSlam because mankind was like a serious threat. You pictured Undertaker in WWF at that time in the mid-90s, and he was um, early 90s to mid-90s, and he was wrestling all the big guys. King Kong Bundy, Giant Gonzalez, Adam Bomb, Mabel... Um, you know, all these big men, Yokozuna, and he met his match with Mankind. Mankind brought something a little bit different to The Undertaker, brought the fight just a little bit differently, and was he ended up getting the better, the, 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 the better of him on a number of occasions. And this really all started the night after WrestleMania in 1996 when Undertaker was wrestling uh, Justin Hawk Bradshaw, who we would all know as JBL. And Mankind made his debut and attacked The Undertaker and really sent a message that he was, you know, he was a force to be reckoned with. Now, me personally, I was kind of hoping for Cactus Jack because I was a big Cactus Jack fan from WCW, and I thought a Cactus Jack Undertaker rivalry would have been good. But looking back on it, it's obviously the better call that you know he debuted under the Mankind persona, something that the WWF at that time created for him. So anyhow. Um, you know that happened, and then they had their you know a series of matches. Um, Mankind had gotten involved in a couple of matches. Undertaker had with Gold Dust, really making his presence felt. And uh, then they had their um, their match at the King of the Ring, where Paul Bearer accidentally hit the Undertaker with the urn, costing him the match. And that's where the ball started to get rolling. Um, which we move on to SummerSlam in the Boiler Room Brawl, one of the the most memorable um, gimmick matches in all of wrestling history. These guys beat the shit out of each other. It was a sight to see. Um, Certainly uh, one of the the most interesting, innovative uh, uh, creations in WWE and in wrestling in general was this match. And so the object of the match was you had to escape the Boiler Room and get into the ring and possessed the urn that Paul Bearer was holding in the middle of the ring. And uh, Undertaker and Mankind, they they destroyed that boiler room. They destroyed the locker room area. They made their way out to the ringside area. They destroyed the ringside area. And when Undertaker had Mankind down and was able to get to Paul Bearer, he reaches for Paul Bearer in that urn, and Paul Bearer turns the other cheek with the urn. And Undertaker's looking at him like, Paul, give me the urn. What are you doing? And... Bearer refused, and you could hear it on commentary, like, what's Paul Bearer doing? Even the crowd was in disbelief, and then out of nowhere, Paul Bearer nails the Undertaker in the head with the urn, helping Mankind win the first ever Boiler Room Brawl, and, uh, you know, we're off to the races there, but that partnership 
that the two of them had for so long. You know, I mean, Undertaker debuted at the 1990 Survivor Series with Brother Love, but it was not long after that that Paul Bearer was 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 inserted into the managerial role, and things really took off for the Undertaker character. And Paul Bearer was very instrumental in the success of the Undertaker character. His presence and what he brought to that presentation with the Undertaker character is very instrumental. And people, you know, have have praised that aspect of the Undertaker character as, you know, something that he was. The people have basically said that if it wasn't for Paul Bear, Undertaker wouldn't be as popular as he was. Let's just put it to you that way. And I would happen to agree with some people uh, with that statement. So seeing Paul Bear turn on The Undertaker um, was definitely something that was shocking to wrestling fans and something that, um, you know, fans of The Undertaker couldn't believe. And, you know, as, as good as they were together... They were equally good apart from each other when Paul Bearer would have Mankind do the bidding for him against The Undertaker. And then that turned to eventually Vader would do the bidding against The Undertaker. And then it would eventually be Kane. You know, the, the long-standing association that these two characters had with each other, whether they, whether they were with each other or against each other, it was all good stuff. You know, like I said earlier, the real money is in the, is in the pairing with Paul Heyman and Brock Lesnar, not the two of them apart, but... Undertaker and Paul Bearer, whether they were together or apart, it was still good stuff. So, um, coming in at number four, Paul Bearer turning on The Undertaker at SummerSlam in 1996. Now, we make it to the top three of this Valentine's-inspired countdown, the greatest breakups in wrestling history. Three breakups that, in my opinion, really resonated with me, and I feel like these breakups had to be at the top of the list. There was no other spot for them. And three breakups that as a fan, it, 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 it hit me pretty hard on a number of levels. And I'll get into number three right now. As Owen Hart turned on his brother Bret Hart at the 1994 Royal Rumble. We covered the Royal Rumble match in a watch-along, uh, Justin and myself, uh, just, a few, just a few weeks prior. You can find that link over in the archives at SoundCloud.com um, where... Uh, Owen kicked Brett's leg out of his leg. And how we got to that point, well, let's go back to Survivor Series 1993. It was Brett, Owen, Keith, and Bruce Hart, the Hart brothers, facing off against Shawn Michaels and the Three Knights in a Survivor Series elimination match. And um, Owen would be the, 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 the odd man out as uh, Shawn Michaels would eliminate Owen Hart due to uh, Owen Hart... Um, inadvertently uh, knocking Brett off the ring apron, uh, resulting in Michael sneaking up from behind and getting the victory. And then later on in the match, Brett, Keith, and Bruce would end up being the survivors. And Owen would come out later and would kind of get in Brett's face and say, you cost me the match. And um, this was what really started the whole, um, you know, living in the shadow storyline as Owen was allegedly living in the shadow of Bret Hart. Um, they would eventually patch things up. Um, over the holidays, and then their sights were set on being a team as they were set to challenge the, the, the Quebecers for the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Championship. And as we saw in that match, um, Brett hurt his leg, and he selfishly didn't make the tag to Owen because he thought he could finish the match on one leg. And thus the referee called for the bell, and the Quebecers ended up winning the match as the referee stopped the match due to Brett's injury. And Owen was not happy and 
belittling Brett, berating him in the middle of the ring, and then kicking his leg out of his leg and almost costing him the Royal Rumble match. Uh, we would see later that Brett would eventually enter the Royal Rumble match and uh, be the co-winner along with Lex Luger. We discussed that in the watch-along over in the archives at SoundCloud.com. But um, it was done so very well because it really was an emotional um, emotional roller coaster you know they 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 got along they had their differences then they got along again and then you know it was the younger brother being jealous of the older brother and so um it, it happens it's natural um it's natural in any family for siblings to argue and fight and for siblings to be jealous of one another i don't think it's natural that one brother kicks the other brother in the leg and he can't walk but it's wrestling so let's just play along here for a minute uh, but it was one of those situations where um you, you didn't want to see it happen, but when it did happen, you wanted to see Owen get his coming. You know, he, you wanted to see the, the, the ass-whooping that was due to him. Um, and and Brett, was, Brett, was, Brett was ready to give him one, that's for sure. Uh, so, um, following that, of course, we would see the classic that they had at WrestleMania 10. Owen would pull out the victory in the opening match, but then later Brett would um, eventually win the World Wrestling Federation Championship, which, by the way, we're going to cover on March the 20th right here on Kicking Out at 2 in a special WrestleMania 10 watch-along 25 years to the date that WrestleMania 10 took place inside Madison Square Garden, the silver anniversary of the 10th anniversary of WrestleMania. Stay tuned for that. Um, and then this storyline would continue that, you know, Brett was the champion, but Owen had that hanging over Brett's head that he beat him at WrestleMania. He beat the current WWF champion. And Owen would eventually win the King of the Ring. They would get Jim Neidhart involved, and he would be supporting Owen. Then they had that classic cage match at SummerSlam. But the breakup in and of itself comes in at number three because it was just done so well. And it made you, uh, it made you really not only hate Owen for what he did, but sympathize with Brett. You know, Brett didn't want to fight his brother. Brett didn't see that there was these issues, the deep, these deep-seated issues that Owen was having. He didn't think that there was jealousy or that there was, you know, that, that Owen was living in a shadow. But Owen felt this way, and Owen needed to prove it to Brett. And unfortunately, he did it in a manner by turning on his brother following that match. So, um... What followed after that was just some fantastic stuff, and they really kept up with the rivalry for a number of years until, um, you know, until they would eventually reform and become the Newhart Foundation with Davy Boy Smith and Jim Neidhart and Brian Pillman, and they did that whole USA Canada angle. So, um, coming in at number three, Owen Hart turning on his brother Brett at the 1994 Royal Rumble. Number two. Number two, okay, I kind of previewed this in last week's show on our Mania Game Changers when I was talking about um, the build-up to WrestleMania 8 in 1992, is the barbershop incident. Now, I'm not just talking about any barbershop incident. I'm talking about the most famous one, probably the, 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 one of the greatest breakups in all of wrestling history, and that's why it makes number two on this kicking out at two top 14 countdown as Shawn Michaels threw Marty Jannetty through the barbershop window, ending the partnership and the tag team of the Rockers. Um, let's go back here for a minute, okay? I was a big Rockers fan. I loved their style. They reminded me a lot of the Rock and Roll Express. I was a big Rock and Roll Express guy. I loved the flashy outfits, the tag team, double team maneuvers. Um, I just loved the Rockers. I thought they were great. And I thought they were one of the teams that deserved an opportunity, or should I say deserved a run with the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team titles. They almost had it 
in that match on Saturday night's main event with Brett and Anvil, but the top rope broke, and they never aired the match, and they never were officially the champions. But um, I was always, you know, as a kid thinking to myself, when are the Rockers going to be the champions? You know, the Rockers deserve the belts. So they didn't have the belts. And towards the tail end of 1991, we would see dissension between Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. A lot of miscommunications in tag team matches. Shawn kind of um, hogging the limelight, similar to what Scott and Rick Steiner were doing with each other, but not on a sibling level. And, uh, you know, some losses that the two would suffer at one point. Um, there was a Survivor Series elimination match where the Rockers tagged with the Bushwhackers against the Beverly Brothers and the Nasty Boys in November of 91. And the Rockers would be eliminated due to some miscommunication with um, Sean and Marty. And that really kind of kicked things into overdrive as we headed into early 1992 on an episode of The Barbershop. Brutus the Barber Beefcake hosting the segment on The Barbershop set, discussing with Sean and Marty about the the rumors of a breakup from an article that took place in you know that was published in the WWF magazine and uh you know Marty was the the one that really wanted to um wanted to uh you know salvage the team because he felt there was some mileage left and they could do some big things and Sean had developed kind of a cocky attitude and we saw the early stages of what would be later known as the heartbreak kid the very cocky charismatic um Sean Michaels and uh, uh you know the two of them kind of hemmed and hawed and then eventually they, they they shook hands and they kissed and made up and all was right with the world and Brutus Beefcake has said ladies and gentlemen the rockers and he walked through the back of the the barber shop and the two of them posed and they raised hands and uh Bobby Heenan was like see Monsoon I knew they weren't gonna break up and then all of a sudden boom Michaels nails him with a devastating super kick and then Bobby Heenan says which is a great line because he was such a great heel commentator. He's like, oh, I knew he was going to do that. And then Michaels seemingly um, began to pummel Gennetti, kicking him in the head, kicking him in the gut, and then finally taking him and ramming him through the glass of the barbershop window, which at that time in 1992 was ultra-violent in the landscape of WWF. Um, you saw chairs and foreign objects, but you never saw somebody get thrown through a plate glass window. I mean, that was that was a, a visual that, you know, um, definitely gets played on a lot of highlight reels on a number of levels, whether it's, you know, uh, greatest turns, greatest breakups, Shawn Michaels' greatest moments. Um, it certainly makes the highlight reels and uh, something that I'm sure that uh, a lot of you folks can uh, find on the WWE Network right now if you just search for... Um, uh, maybe it's in there in one of the Shawn Michaels collections, or I don't know. If you if you search for it, I, I bet you could find. It. If you can't find it on network, you probably find it on YouTube. But um, yeah, to me as a fan, I was like, oh man, like the Rockers are done. And I was I was I was like fifty fifty. I was like upset that they were done, but at the same time, I was like, well, now Marty's got to get his revenge. And I kind of alluded to it in last week's Mania Game Changers that I felt at that time, well, it's only a matter of time before Marty Jannetty gets his hands on Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 8. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. And we would have to wait for almost a year, a little over like eight, maybe eight or nine months before um, 
Jannetty would eventually return to the WWF and get a piece of Michaels, and which would set up their match at the 1993 Royal Rumble for the Intercontinental Championship. Um, but yeah, this was like a this was a heartbreaker for me. No, no pun intended, because um, like I said, big fan of the Rockers. Never really got the opportunity to be the champions, and then you know this happens to split the breakup, and um, this obviously launched the career of Shawn Michaels. This was you know think about this. If he turned on Marty Jannetty any other way without throwing him through the plate glass window, I'm not saying he wouldn't be as successful, but I don't think he would have been as serious of a character right out of the gate. Because after he did that, people took notice of him in a singles role. They put him with Sensational Sherry, and you know he was, he was off to the races. He was looked at as you know a serious player in the WWF at that time, someone who could compete for the Intercontinental Championship. So um, if he didn't do that to Gennetti, I don't know how fast he would have made it into a, into a major singles role. You know what I mean? So by doing that, they seriously had plans for him going forward. And... Um, the rest is history. We know all about Shawn Michaels and, and, and Shawn Michaels' history and the career that he's had. And uh, that, was the, that was the launching point for the singles, the singles run of the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels, at number two, the barbershop incident. And now the number one breakup in all of professional wrestling history, according to me and the rest of the Kicking Out of Two crew, what makes number one in our greatest breakup in all of professional wrestling history is when the Mega Powers exploded in 1989. Um, let's let's go back. Let's go through history here for just a moment, as we uh, we talk about how the Mega Powers were formed. Um, you know, Hogan and Randy Savage were once rivals um, in the in the uh, the mid 80s. Uh, Savage had wrestled Hogan for the title on a number of occasions and some live events. And it was something that they just kind of like touched upon and didn't really um, exploit that much on WWF television. They had some matches at live events. In fact, the first show I ever went to as a kid at the Hartford Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut, the main event was Hogan and Savage. I don't remember year, what year that was. I want to say it was maybe 86, uh, maybe 87? I'm not sure. Early 86, early 87? I, I, I don't remember. I'll have to ask my father um, who, who took me. But um, the, uh, the Mega Powers were formed in October of 1987 as, um, you know, Macho Man had become a good guy. And he, uh, he was wrestling um, Honky Tonk Man and the Hart Foundation got involved and they were putting a beating on him. And the Honky Tonk Man nailed him with the guitar, straight shot right to the head. And then he shoved Miss Elizabeth, who tried stopping Honky Tonk Man from going further with the beatdown. Elizabeth couldn't take it anymore, and she went to help, or went to go find some help, and out came Hulk Hogan, who cleaned house, and, you know, the place blew up. Um, one of the most memorable moments watching wrestling as a kid. And that was when I became a fan of the Macho Man Randy Savage. I... I I always had some interest in him because he had the voice and like, oh yeah, uh and the flashy outfits, Uh, but I didn't approve of the way he treated Miss Elizabeth, even as a young kid. I mean, I had a crush on Miss Elizabeth. She was my first crush ever in real life, my first celebrity crush, and so, um, you know, I didn't really care for the way he treated her, but then when he teamed with Hogan, I forgot about all that, (laughs) because Hogan was my end-all, be-all. He was the guy that got me into wrestling, so um, when they formed the Mega Powers, it was like a super tag team. It was like Batman and Superman, you know, teaming up, and, uh, 
it, it was it was it was a lot of fun to watch and this friendship and this teaming would develop over time heading into uh heading into 1988 and uh you know hogan and savage would be in the wwf championship tournament at wrestlemania 4 savage would make it to the finals defeating ted dibiase with a little bit of help from hulk hogan and uh you know we were off to the races it was you know the mega powers uh, the, the the two greatest forces in all of wrestling um with macho man spearheading it as the wwf champion and miss elizabeth um right by their side it was it was it was a sight to see and we would continue with um you know various tag matches uh, against uh you know different individuals but you know the some of the more memorable ones in particular the main event of SummerSlam 1988 when Hogan and Savage wrestled uh, Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase and Andre the Giant and we saw the infamous um, reveal where Miss Elizabeth uh, pulled off her skirt to reveal she was in it wasn't a itsy bitsy teeny weeny bikini uh-huh no it wasn't it was not a polka dot bikini uh-huh but it was like a sexy corset, if you will. And it caught the attention of DiBiase and Andre and Bobby Heenan and Virgil and then the referee Jesse Ventura. And then they, you know, Hogan and Savage would capitalize on the distraction and end up uh, you know, winning the tag team match. And that was like the first sign of, you know, at the end of that match when they were posing and, and soaking in the adulation of the sold-out crowd in Madison Square Garden, you saw the early signs of the dissension. Um, as Hogan kind of like grabbed Miss Elizabeth and he was, to me, I rationalized it as he was excited and he was, you know, just trying to celebrate with his friend, Miss Elizabeth and Savage kind of gave him a couple of dirty looks, but it was just like a little tease and things would continue, um, Heading into the fall of that year as they became the sole survivors in their match at Survivor Series, defeating uh, the team of Million Dollar Man, Big Boss Man, Akeem, Haku, and Terry Taylor, the Red Rooster. Hogan and Savage were the sole survivors um, of that team. Uh, And they celebrated and, you know, Hogan kind of embraced Elizabeth and you could see the look on Savage's face like, what are you doing, pal? Like, what's going on, man? Um... And it was just starting to build and build and build. And then eventually we came to the Royal Rumble in 1989 where things really kicked it into overdrive. Um, Hogan and Savage were both in that match. And, uh, you know, Hogan ended up eliminating Savage along with Bad News Brown. And Savage didn't really take a liking to it. Savage was not pleased that his best friend dumped him over the top. But, you know, 30-man Royal Rumble match. It's every man for themselves. So uh, they got into it a little bit in the match. You know, after Savage got eliminated, he slapped Hogan. Elizabeth's trying to get in between them. Um, And you're really starting to see that there's an issue between the two of them that's going to eventually blow up as we move forward to um, Saturday night's main event in February, the following month, where Hogan and Savage um, put their differences aside to team up with the big boss man and Akeem. And it was the pivotal moment in this match where um, Savage was uh, thrown through the through the uh, the second rope, and he landed on top of Miss Elizabeth on the outside, and she was knocked out. And man, she took quite the bump! Like holy shit! Like going back and watching it, Savage landed like right on her head, and there wasn't much you know padding on the outside to support her um she looked like she was legitimately knocked out even as a kid i was like oh my god he hurt her and you saw hogan come to the aid of miss elizabeth and um leave his partner randy savage to fend for himself against the big boss man and akeem which savage did not 
take a liking to. Hogan was concerned about the welfare of Miss Elizabeth to the point where he thought she was dead. I mean, looking back on it now, it was rather silly, um, to say the least. And I thought, you know, well, God forbid, like, she's hurt, but she ain't dying, dude. Like, you know, go back out there and let the professionals handle it. Like, what are you going to do? Like, the, 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 the gimmick doctor that was back there um, couldn't even, you know, get her blood pressure or check her pulse because Hogan was, like, hovering over her in the, in the, in the doctor's room, in the trainer's room of the building. Um, so then eventually Hogan came back, and uh, Savage, who had been, you know, fending for himself, um, was was not happy that Hogan had left, and he slapped Hogan right in the face and walked out. And Hogan, you know, baffled by it, was like, "Why are you leaving me, brother?" Well, I mean, Hulk, I love you, man. You're 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 my favorite of all time, but you know, you left Macho Man hanging in the balance. You left him in a lurch, you know. And so Macho Man gave you a receipt for it. And so, um, you know, post match came after uh, you know. Hogan was done dealing with Bossman and Akeem, and he was looking for Randy Savage, like Randy Savage had done the most horrible thing to him, leaving him out there, uh, all the while forgetting that, you know, dude, you left him first. <laughs> and uh, he goes into the trainer's room, and he's like, what's going on, brother? What's your deal, Savage? And the two of them, you know, hem and haw, and they 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 uh, they, they get in each other's uh, faces, and Savage slaps them, and Savage is like, you're jealous, uh-huh? You got lust in your eyes for Elizabeth, uh-huh? I see the Lust in your eyes, you want my championship. You want to shut at the bell, all you had to do was ask. You didn't have to go after Elizabeth, brother, uh huh? So, uh, there was that, and then finally the slap heard around the world. He smacked Hogan right in the face, and then Hogan, in disbelief, didn't know what to do, and Savage then nailed him with the title belt and uh, attacked him. And, you know, Elizabeth screaming in pain, Randy, no, don't do this, Randy, leave him alone. You shut up, bitch, uh-huh. You're the reason why this is all happening, so keep your fucking mouth shut, uh-huh. Yeah, that's right, I'm talking to you, bitch. You're going to be doing extra, extra chores around the house, more dishes, taking out the garbage, mopping the floor, I'm even gonna make you clean the toilet with my toothbrush, uh-huh, then you're gonna throw that toothbrush away because I'm not gonna use the toothbrush after it just cleaned the toilet, uh-huh, yeah, that's right, it's all because of you, yeah, uh-huh, <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, the, then that was the end of it, that was, that was it, that was the, the, the explosion of the mega powers, they had finally, they, you know, the, 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 the the bloom was off the rose, so to speak. It was all done. And as a fan, as a kid, I was, as much as I loved Macho Man, you know, and at six years old, I couldn't, you know, obviously I couldn't rationalize Hulk Hogan's behavior at this time, but at six years old, I thought Macho Man did him wrong. And that Hogan needs to get the belt back and he needs to beat his best friend for it. And maybe, just maybe, because I remember as a kid, I thought to myself, you know, maybe if Hulk Hogan beat some sense into him, that Macho Man's going to, you know, see the error of his ways and come back and we'll get the Mega Powers reformed. I, I remember saying that to my dad and my grandfather when uh, we ordered uh, the WrestleMania 5 pay-per-view at, at my house that day. But, um, yeah, so, um, you know, the, the, the follow-up to that, of course, was the Mega Powers exploding at WrestleMania 5 in a great main event. And Hulk Hogan would eventually become the World Wrestling Federation champion once again. And all was right with the world. But... To me, the reason why this is the greatest breakup in wrestling history because it had such a great buildup from start to finish. You had them, you know, form a, form a bond and a friendship. Um, 
because they had a common enemy and then they would fight all their battles together and they were they were hanging and banging for 40 days and 40 nights brother um and then you know eventually the 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 seeds of dissension would uh would, would come into play and you know Hogan would get a little too handsy with Miss Elizabeth and Randy Savage, you know, would wouldn't take a liking to it and then then the title got involved and and you know, just the whole, you know, from start to finish it was just some really really good stuff. They gave you just enough to want more. They didn't they didn't totally blow it off until they absolutely had to. And I mean, that was the time in wrestling where, you know, in that landscape, you know, you didn't have your finish take place tomorrow. The storyline didn't start today and then tomorrow, it, which in some ways kind of happens in today's wrestling, or at least in today's WWE, I should say. Uh, but yeah, that's why this makes number one here on the official Kicking Out at Two Greatest Breakups in All of Wrestling History. I'd like to thank you all so very much for bearing with me once again as I was a solo act this week. Um, next week, I promise you, I will have someone... Uh, with me to give you the In Your House Final Four Trading Places, uh, where we take the scenarios from each and every match on that card, and we flip the results, and we see how those individuals and that storyline would have mapped out within that landscape of WWE, in a realistic fashion, of course. Not, you know, I don't like to fantasy book. I've said this a bunch of times when it comes to trading places. I don't like fantasy booking. Um, I, I like to go back and remember how things were within the landscape of the story lines at that time and try to map things out in a realistic fashion that I think um, could have offered a alternative result and something that may have been a little bit better, but without that fantasy booking uh, theory behind it. So we're going to do that within your house. Final four, some matches on that card were the final four main event, which it was for the undisputed WWF championship as Bret Hart, Vader, The Undertaker, and Stone Cold Steve Austin met in a four corners over-the-top rope little mini battle royal. You also saw um, Rocky Maivia face off against Hunter Hearst Helmsley for the Intercontinental Championship. What would have happened if Rocky Maivia lost the belt so quickly from Hunter Hearst Helmsley following his upset victory just a few days prior at Thursday Raw Thursday? What would have happened if... Undertaker won the final four, or if Stone Cold won the final four, or if Vader won the final four, how would that have affected things moving forward with WrestleMania after Shawn Michaels lost his smile? I kind of alluded to that a little bit on last week's Mania's Game Changer show, but next week I'm going to really go in-depth with some of those scenarios and see how they would have been mapped out realistically for 1997 WWF storyline. So stay tuned for that next week over at SoundCloud.com. You can also check me out on Mark out the days this week, February 14th, Kobe Knight and myself from Retromania, we discuss all the happenings that took place in wrestling history on Valentine's Day. So that should be an interesting show. You can find that over at moholeradio.com, iTunes, retromania.blogspot.com, and other podcast platforms. And that, I think, about does it this week for this heartbreaking countdown. We hope you all enjoy your Valentine's Day. If you have a loved one, please, by all means, show them how much you love them. Not just today, but every other day, um, as I'm hoping to do that with my wife this week. Um, we don't really celebrate Valentine's Day too much, but, you know, we try to show each other appreciation throughout the year. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, 
this Valentine's Day will be a uh, a, a very memorable one for the two of us as we uh, we, we continue on this path in life as husband and wife. <laughs> Not to be too corny, but you know what? I think it's about that time. There's no breakups anymore. There's no run-ins. We're not going to see any ex-partners or ex-wives or ex-girlfriends uh, break up the three count. It is time that we put this show down and call it a day, and we will see you all next week.